Mike, welcome to the Judgment Call podcast. Thanks for coming. Really appreciate that. Thank you, Torsten. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, um, so you, your claim to fame is really the passive investment bubble. And uh, you also recently joined um, Simplify, uh, one of the most interesting ETF creators out there. And uh, my first question is, you know, for listeners out there, who haven't heard of this particular bubble that you've been describing for a couple of years now. Uh, what are the core tenets of your thesis there? And what do you think is wrong with passive investing? Because a lot of us think of this as a very safe and potentially very lucrative investing stock. Well, I think this is one of the challenges that in terms of you know my theory and what I've observed about the market and how it's playing out is that for most investors is a natural attraction to being in a passive vehicle. Right. Your, your objective is very much to just try to match the return of the market. And so it feels like it is the right choice. And you're seeking out lower fees. You're seeking out broad exposure. You're diversifying as you would expect, et cetera. And so it is a winning combination from the investor standpoint on an individual basis. The problem is, like many phenomenon, when you expand it and it becomes the dominant feature, it becomes a tragedy of the commons. And so the first place you have to start with passive investing is to understand that the basic theory behind it is predicated on what's referred to as the efficient market hypothesis. And so the efficient market hypothesis was a theoretical construct that was created in the 1950s and 1960s, most closely associated with Eugene Fama. The idea is very straightforward, that prices in the market represent all of the information or the best estimate, the best intersection of information that exists across the market, right? And this is the idea that prices are set on a fundamental basis. So I, as a single investor, look at Microsoft, I make a forecast of the cash flows, I estimate what the future performance is going to be, I make some estimate in terms of what I expect it to be worth in the future, and then I compare that versus my cost of capital, discount that back to the present value and buy Microsoft, right? So the theory is that millions and millions, potentially billions of people doing this, contribute to a market in which there is it is extraordinarily difficult to gain an information edge. And that's a really important component is that the expectation is, is that prices reflect information. There's, a, there's an issue associated with that, right? Which is that prices don't actually represent information. Prices represent transactions. So when you look at a market, what you're actually seeing is not where the price is right now. It's where the last transaction happened. And it's a presumption that we're making that the next transaction is going to be close to that price. There are, there are a few events in history where we have seen that not be the case, right? The crash in 1987 would be a great example. The crash in 19, 1929 would be a great example. Um, in the volatility space, the events of Volmageddon, February 5th, 2018, right? Where the next morning you woke up and the price of a security XIV had fallen 95%, right? We've seen this in a couple of different situations. That is a good indication of this, this phenomenon that it's not actually information, but it's transactions that are occurring. And once you recognize that that's happening, then you recognize that passive players violate the actual underlying philosophy of what a passive player is supposed to be. According to the work of Bill Sharp, which is used and cited for the rationale for why passive outperforms in aggregate, right? The idea is very straightforward. An active investor is one who transacts, who trades off the information, and a passive investor is simply one who holds all the securities in the market, right? The problem is, is that leaves no mechanism for how you get in the market or how you get out of the market. 
right? It's effectively a pure paper portfolio theory. If I were to track the market, which is what an index is designed to do, then I would meet that criteria. But the minute I begin to participate, I change the underlying structure. And that's the flaw in the ointment because now what we have is we've grown passive to the size, the passive investment strategies, the vanguards, Black Rocks, uh, even the Fidelity, Schwab's, et cetera, of the world who increasingly rely on S&P 500 indices or total market indices. They are every day in the market representing the lion's share of the net transactions, the buying that is occurring. And when that happens, you need to actually start to disaggregate and say, okay, what is the mechanism that these vehicles are trading off of? And they don't trade off of information. They trade off of flows. Right? The rules for passive are incredibly simple. Did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell. Nowhere in there is there any information about the performance of an underlying security. Right, And within the indices themselves, you also get a um, inversion of the traditional process of price formation. So one of the things that I did as I began to develop this theory was I went out and I surveyed active investors, people like myself, discretionary investors. And I asked them a very simple question, right? When you receive a new inflow or you receive an outflow, what is your propensity to invest given valuation, right? So a Schiller type valuation, you know, zero times or one times earnings up to a hundred times earnings. What's your propensity to invest or to sell stocks? when you receive an instruction from your end investor, right? And what you found in that is, as you would expect, the discretionary investor is more willing to sell at high prices or high valuations and less willing to sell at low valuations. They're more willing to sell, uh, to, to buy at low valuations, less willing to buy at high valuations, right? When you run a system that is built on those rules, then it's a mean reverting system, right? As valuations rise, People become less willing to deploy capital, valuations retreat. Passive works in the exact opposite fashion. As valuations rise, the incremental marginal capital, because you're doing so on a market cap weighted basis. So how does something get to high market cap? It rose in price, right? Yeah. If its price is um, not directly tied to the fundamentals, as it's rising, rising in price, its valuations are rising. And so you end up with the perverse dynamic where the market becomes very momentum weighted Effectively, the, the dominant flow of capital is money coming in on a momentum-weighted basis, which means that the largest companies receive incrementally more capital. The companies that have risen the most receive incrementally more capital. And those that are lagging behind really aren't receiving any significant marginal inflows. Yeah. It gets even worse than that because as we begin to switch from the active managers, firing the active managers, discretionary managers, and replacing them with the index or passive managers, that signal becomes amplified. The value-based or marginal forward return-based uh, process of the discretionary manager is under redemption, meaning the stocks that they like are getting sold, the stocks that they hate are getting bought back, right? And the passive players are dominating it. And, and in my analysis, this is what's going on in the markets today. I wonder, and this is, this is very fascinating. And the first time I heard this, I'm like, whoa, now it finally, explains why value investing and the whole idea of value investing is really rare because it simply has made a ton of money the last 20 years 
and that's kind of where, where I come from, is where, where is this margin of safety, right? And where can I see low valuations that potentially rise in the future? And usually that's not what happens in the market. It's kind of a continuous trend following that we see out there. What I want to do is, is that a bit of a maybe bigger um, follow-up to the Nifty 50, right? So we saw this in the 60s, 70s, there is this information gap that you just talked about. There is market players in the market that see the whole market, right? They see all the investment opportunities, but there's a lot of people in the not so informed public out there who don't have the time for it. And they just go into the big names, right? They, they know that used to be Nasdaq in the 2000s and uh, we just want to be in Yahoo, we want to be in pets.com because it sounds good and we heard about it, right? That's the only reason we invest in it. And we really don't care about valuations because we think about the future. And in the future, these companies will make a ton of money. And uh, is, are we just, is it just on a, on a bigger scale now that we see these valuations rise so much and the index investing that was kind of a theme that Warren Buffett gave us, I feel, oh, and this will fall apart because the sharks, the smart investors, so to speak, they are already circling passive investing and they will come down on it sooner or later because it's just not such a smart idea to keep buying Apple the same stock irrespective of the price. So there's a lot to unpack in in, in that observation, right? Every, everything ranging from people seeking out safety to Warren Buffett. Um, in let's let's hit each of those in turn. So um, a recreation of the Nifty Fifty in the 1970s, right? Um, the the Nifty Fifty in the 1970s was a group of roughly 50 stocks that people basically just said buy at any price, right? Um, those were, they were the Polaroids, the Kodaks, et cetera, of the world that represented effectively unlimited growth potential. Um, I think that there's an element of that in that. Um, you see the market narrowing and concentrating, but the question becomes why, right? Is it because people are objectively looking at the top 50 stocks and saying, these represent a unique feature? And was that the case even then, right? We, we, we kind of hear these things filtered through history, right? What I would suggest was likely happening in the 1970s was that you had a broker approved list that they were able to go out and tell their investors, this was also a time period where there was a change in what's referred to as the ERISA rules, right? Um, which are which govern all of the retirement pension accounts, et cetera. And so there was in all likelihood an approved list that people didn't have to seek out approval on an individual basis to trade those names. And so the market naturally concentrates there, right? It's a little bit like if you have a teenage son and they need to come to you to get permission to go with their friends in a car, but they don't need to get permission from you to take the car and go out, right? What are they gonna end up doing? They're gonna end up driving their car to a parking lot somewhere, leaving the car there, and then hopping in their friend's car, right? Because they want to remove the frictions associated with it. Ultimately, that I would guess is what happened in the 1970s, right? I've spent less time actually studying that dynamic of the market than I have in other areas. Today, you have a even more concentrated variant of that, where the money that goes into retirement accounts in the United States, primarily through 401ks and IRAs, um, we've introduced a series of rules that make it very difficult for a corporation sponsoring a 401k, right, which is a defined contribution plan, or for a registered investment advisor offering investment alternatives to their clients, we've made it very difficult for them to do anything other than the cheapest 
lowest cost index solutions, right? They're actually exposed to liability and being sued by their clients for putting them into products that violate what's referred to as the fiduciary standard, right? Which is a, a standard that says ultimately was their best interest at heart rather than something else, right? Yeah. Now, whether they're actually guilty of violating that when they put money into something other than a Vanguard product or into a State Street product or into a BlackRock product, I'm very skeptical that that's the case, but having been through legal you know, uh, challenges myself at, at various points in time, the, the correct strategy is to avoid litigation risk, right? Yeah. And so everyone is kind of being forced into these strategies, regardless of whether they think it's a good idea. And then the last thing that I would say on that is when we talk about the dynamics of value investing or the Warren Buffett, you know, margin of safety type approach, the problem is, is, is that we know in history this worked, but it hasn't worked for give or take the past 10 years or 20 years, right? It's a little bit more uh, in debate if we include the dot-com cycle, but people are ultimately forced to say, am I willing to pay for this theory or do I wanna believe my own eyes, right? And increasingly people are opting out of that process, right? They're, they don't, there's no reason why a human being whose job is to go to work and figure out mortgage applications or to conduct surgery on people, you know, uh, who have a brain tumor or to be the nurse who's attending under, under those conditions, right? There's absolutely no reason for them to be involved in, in a discussion around the theories of the efficiency of markets and whether active managers can add skill, et cetera. I, they, they just opt out because it's a confusing question. And so we're, we're trapped in this situation where the mechanisms that are supposed to provide a negative feedback loop, in other words, meaning dampening these effects, right? Not negative in terms of bad outcomes, but negative in terms of dampening are being eviscerated and we're being replaced increasingly by positive feedback loops that amplify these events. Yeah, and I find that, I find that I think this is this is just the other coin of this the other side of that coin is what the your theory predicts is because we have this this herd this stampede into one um, direction we would see higher volatility in um, events like we had last March than we would see otherwise simply because there's no discretionary no smart buyers left right smart buyers in our definition right now they buy when the valuations are low and um, those are good investments just simply on the price. But what we see instead of passive investors who say, well, I don't I don't think there's something going on in the stock market. So I just shut up this buy algorithm that they usually have. Because as you say, they have no sell algorithm besides retirement, maybe. But generally there's only a buy mechanism. There's no there's no other side that works against us on this on selling securities. And uh, so volatility is higher than we would see otherwise. And we I don't know where the drawdown was, 60% maybe in the S&P during March. Um, it's it's pretty big, right? On a, even on a historic scale, it went down to what we saw in 1992, 1929s. Yeah. So 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 just very quickly, it wasn't sixty percent or anywhere close. It was it was more like thirty percent. Um, okay. But it felt awfully bad, right? And yeah. this the more quick. important the more important feature about what happened in March twenty twenty was the speed in, in from February twenty twenty to March twenty twenty was the speed of the fall, right? So barring the single day type events around a March 1980 or a October 1987, this was by far the fastest and deepest um, market decline that we had ever seen, right? Yeah. Um, the question is why did that happen? Or was it, was it unique to the dynamics of COVID, 
right? And the fact that the world basically came to a stop and we weren't certain what was going to happen. Or was there something in the structure of the market that contributed to that? My analysis is, is that it's the structure of the market. And that helped me in the immediate aftermath, you know, to turn around and say on March 26, I published a piece that said, look, I think the markets are going right back to all time highs. They're going to do it faster than anyone thinks. And the reason why is X, right? It's because of the dynamics of market structure. It was, it, you can think about it as simply as when the events of January and February began to occur, many of the thoughtful discretionary traders looked around the world and saw the headlines coming in that this pandemic was gaining steam and that places like Italy were already shut down, right? And shutting down. Um, and they tried to sell the market right, and tried to short the market, tried to do various things. Because there had not yet been any impact in um, flows on unemployment, or flows in employment, right, so paychecks were continuing to roll into passive vehicles, you had this opposite impulse where the market was pushed higher. I would argue in February, you saw people who were too early, right, so we all are familiar with the movie The Big Short, right, and you remember the pain that Christian Bale, Michael Burry experienced as he was early to this trade, right? Investor redemptions, people firing him, you have no idea what you're talking about, et cetera. You could tangibly feel that in the markets in late February, where people are sitting there going, what in the world is going on? Why are markets making all-time highs, even as we have this pandemic going on, followed by this incredible crash, right? Um, that incredible crash was effectively a very small fraction of passive players experiencing sales for the first time, right? So the active managers tried to sell, the passive managers did not receive the same net buy order that they normally are receiving. And as a result, the market very quickly shifted into an imbalance that caused a collapse. Okay. Um, that's my analysis of what ended up happening. And the scary part about what emerged is if you look at the reports that Vanguard and a few others have come out with since, trying to effectively allay the concerns around this issue of market structure. You know, Vanguard will point out, you know, less than 1% of our clients actually sold into this event. Well, my reaction to that is, well, what if it had been two, right? I mean, yeah. what if it had been five, right? Like there, there is no solution to that when entities of that size try to sell. Yeah, I, I would feel, I mean, given that it's basically just a buy program that BlackRock and Vanguard have right now, um, if if money comes in, as you pointed out, if ever they want to sell more, then it's, there's only the Fed, there's nobody else. Left. Maybe some foreigners, I mean, maybe it's going to be uh, Saudi Arabia who's going to buy that um, because the price is so good. But besides that, I feel there's no entity left who can absorb 10%, 20% of, of whatever they've accumulated. And I think this is a structural risk, but it's also the question is a little bit what what is the actual yield on these investments in the future? And what I what I was thinking about, and I think this also is very interesting given your thesis, what you see in productivity growth. So the, would we all know that markets sooner or later go along with productivity growth. And the whole world goes along with this. That the competitiveness of whole nations or of whole places in the world goes along with this. What I've been, what we've been seeing is relatively low productivity growth, and that's Peter Thiel's team, someone you worked with very closely for a couple of years. And uh, what what a lot of other scientists pointed this out before, um, 
and researchers, what, what one of the theses is, is that we are just investing in the wrong vehicle. So this is where the passive investing comes in. It's companies who might not give us a 10%, a 15% um, return on equity. No, those are companies who are already in layers and layers of debt out there, and they're just scraping out 1%, a half a percent in growth. So our GDP growth also, on our expectations of GDP growth have been going down so much. Because we're investing in wrong vehicles, we're putting the money, we are not efficient at research allocation and capital allocation, because we're just putting it in bigger and bigger vehicles out there. And we see this in the startup world quite a bit, where we see that it's lots of demand in the really, really early stages, but then basically nothing until you're a unicorn and you go IPO for $50 billion. Um, do you think that makes sense that it has such a strong impact on GDP growth? Well, again, I think that there's 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 multiple angles there, right? So, so first, when you talk about a stock market being tied to elements like productivity growth or earnings growth, et cetera, right? That's trying to link it back to the fundamentals. And I, I just give you a very simple thought experiment, right? What if the government made it illegal for you to sell a stock on a downtick, right? Um, so, in other words, you could or you could only sell a stock at a new all-time high. Right, like Germany, that. right? Exactly. You, you so, right. So you, you've heard you've heard me talk about this, right? So that sounds like a great idea, right? You know, we're going to change the rules of the stock market because we want the market to be at all time highs, and all that means is is that the market stops functioning. And so the classical example of this is exactly Nazi Germany, where it was viewed that the performance of the stock market was an indication of the success of the Nazi regime. Therefore, rules were set in place that prevented the stock market from going down. When you did that, you broke the role of the stock market, right? So the role of the stock market, and this is one of the things that I also have spent some time talking about, is not to provide retirement to people. Right? That's just not its objective function. The objective of a stock market is to facilitate the allocation of capital. And so when we change the function of the market, when we shift it away, and our regulators, the Federal Reserve, for example, changes the objective function of the market from trying to efficiently allocate capital and set the marginal cost of capital through the discretionary application of, of investment. And instead we flip it to a utility that is designed to guarantee a certain level of retirement for people in our society because we refuse to you know, engage in the process of underwriting a social safety net, right? Well, then we've broken it in the same way that the Nazis broke their stock market, and it'll increasingly fail in its function of allocating capital. All right, so I absolutely agree with Peter on that, but I do think it's really important to understand that by changing the rules and by changing the structure of the market, changing the behavior of the participants, we're increasingly inhibiting the ability of it to allocate capital. Um, the second point that I would make is, is that when you look at the technology unicorns, et cetera, they're increasingly not going through an IPO process. We, we tend, you know, unless you're an actual market practitioner, professional in the space, you tend not to pick up the difference between the two. But for example, Palantir went public through a direct listing, meaning in other words, it did not seek out a pool of active managers who are willing to understand and invest in Palantir and agree to hold it and effectively underwrite and sponsor it. They didn't seek out an investment bank that was going to play that role. Instead, they directly listed it onto the exchange and basically said, here's what we think the valuation is. Here's where we're going to list it. And when it shows up there and the advantage of doing a direct listing or of doing a special purpose acquisition company is it actually expedites the process of index inclusion, right? So more quickly, the vanguards and black rocks of the worlds have to start buying these names. Right? Yeah. It's a trick that is being played instead of seeking out the active managers who are losing assets, 
you're trying to get the passive managers to be forced to buy you as quickly as possible. Yeah, right. it seems there's a torrent of money started by the Fed who sets it artificially. It's kind of, it's a Soviet Union instrument, right? I, I can never understand why we set interest rates. I, I, I grew up in that part of the Soviet Union. I didn't like it. And we have this, as a, at the hub of our economy, we have a Soviet planning committee. I think it's 10 people who set interest rates. who have a huge impact on what's going on in, in the whole country, basically in the whole world. And then also we, we started QE, we started all these programs to, to come up with an artificial liquidity and it's pumped into the same stream that, that we just described, this passive investment sooner or later, because we know, as you said, if prices for securities drop too much, then retirement is broken. And then the whole US is basically broken because we all rely, besides our house assets, we rely on a certain price of assets and within a certain range, 10% is probably fine, but 50% is a real problem. Um, is there is there a way out or are we just, we are in it until it goes all to zero? Um, it, I mean, that's a really hard question, right? Because you're asking me to predict a future that... Um, that's why we have you, Mike. That's why we have you, Mike. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have the answers. Uh, well, I, 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 I will, with all humility, say I do not have the answers. I, I have models that suggest what can happen, right? And so, you know, the way I try to approach these problems is I try to figure out the rules that the players are forced to play by. And then I will build agents that effectively mimic that behavior, right? Operate under those rules and then I'll set them loose and I will either give them capital or take capital away. I'll allow them to trade with each other, et cetera, right? To create a, a fast forward simulation of kind of what the constraints or the, the impact of a market can be. Now, by definition, I'm never going to capture all the features of the market. And so, you know, where it becomes really interesting is when you have something like passive that is so large that it'd be a little bit like, you know, trying to ignore the white polar bear that's trying to break down your door, right? You know, just pretend it's not there. It's not going to get you, right? It doesn't work. Um, and so, you know, you're able to capture a large scale picture of it. The, um, the behavior of the Fed is similar, right? So what the Fed is doing is the Fed is increasingly moved from a model where they use interest rates to target inflation and an accelerating or weakening economy. And instead, they're recognizing, again, referring back to the efficient market hypothesis, that the um, market-based signals allow them to theoretically expand their information set by working through what's called the expectations channel. So under that model, if stock prices are falling, right, the information that is contained in the market tells you that the economy is weakening. If the market is rising, then the information that is in the economy is telling you the expectations are rising, therefore the economy is strong, right? Yeah. By targeting that indirect mechanism, they're trying to effectively get a jump on lagging indicators like unemployment, recessions, et cetera, right? You know, famously, if you look at the NBR, you know, declarations of recessions, they don't occur for six to 12 or even 24 months after the event, right? So it's, it's pointless from a, a forecasting standpoint. Um, the problem, of course, is if the Fed's model of how a market works is increasingly at odds with how that market works, right? So if it's no longer an expectations channel and instead it is a flows channel and that behavior of the market is increasingly driven by the changing character of the holders moving from active discretionary managers to passive managers. If that's clouding the information that you're getting, right? You know, it's like driving through a, a rainstorm, right? Your windshield is, is you know, uh, filtering information in a way that it can be confusing for you. You should lower your speed. Ironically, 
because you know there's increasing reliance on financial assets for um, retirement and for uh, spending, particularly for the baby boomer generation, the Fed almost needs to react faster and faster and faster, right? So doing the exact opposite of what you would expect if you're driving in a rainstorm, right? Um, that, you know, that in turn, if I can predict the Fed's reaction function, and I know that the Fed is going to step in and that the Fed is going to try to support financial assets, well, that tells me as a professional investor that I now have a Fed put, right? That the, 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 the regulators are going to step in and support asset prices. Well, that encourages me to put on more leverage, right? And to take a more concentrated position and hold less margin of safety because I know they're doing it for me. And in fact, if you have an asset like a U.S. bond, right, that has, because of the Fed's reaction function, now has a negative price correlation with the risky assets, right? Because people expect that the Fed is going to cut interest rates on a risk-off event. That would cause the price of the bond to go up, right? So that becomes the same behavior that I would expect from an S&P put. The difference is an S&P put loses money over time. The bond makes money over time as long as interest rates are positive. Right. And so I now have a positive carry put. Well, if you run through the math of what the optimal portfolio looks like under a positive carry put, it moves to a levered portfolio. So instead of a 60 40, you move to a 150 100 portfolio. And when you move to a 150 100 portfolio, the demand for financial assets rises. It forces prices even higher than they otherwise would have been. And now we have another positive feedback loop that gets created, right? And so it's positive feedback loop after positive feedback loop that's propelling this thing higher. Eventually, the Fed is going to be forced to respond in one of two ways, either by directly buying financial assets on a risk-off event, right? And that is you know, just a form of closet nationalism, but all the rewards are being given to those who own the assets. Or the Fed is going to have to try to get bond prices even higher by taking interest rates negative. And the problem with negative interest rates is it takes that put that I just described to you that says it's a positive expected value put and it turns it into a negative expected value put, right? So when we cross that threshold, my expectation is actually that the system begins to break. That levered portfolio has to be delevered. Um, that's unknowable, right? I can't know that that's what's going to happen, but that's what my model suggests occurs. I, I feel like we are, when you said that earlier, we didn't build a retirement model like Europe has done and a lot of countries in Asia have done that's run by the government. What I usually don't like about these models is they, they just distribute whatever comes in, right? So whatever billions come in, they distribute it right away. So basically the idea is we can never spend more than we take in, which is great. But on the other hand, there's really no incentive to, to to invest in something useful to invest in your own future. So I think the idea that we put our money into a potential economic growth should reward the US, right? So just, just seeing that capital allocation should put us into one, two, three percent more GDP growth than anyone else in the world. And we are a bit like that, right? So our GDP, it's, there's more volatility, but it's better than in Europe, it's better than Asia. So I think this is kind of a winner. And now we are dealing with the with the after effect of, of being on the winning side of that construction of society. Mm. And uh, is there, I mean, is there anything else but a crash? I mean, in, in the end, I think people get the message. I think they're smart enough to realize what's going on, but nobody has to worry about it as long as the asset is rising, right? It's kind of like the house prices. Yes, we heard worries about um, the big shorts. Um, that was out there, that message, but it was completely ignored because people had no incentive to listen to it because for 30 years, they were only rising or 50 years. 
is, is there the, the only way out of this is the the big crash of whatever passive investment stream we're seeing and people actually have lots of their retirement portfolio and say oh i want to do this again i got to get out of stocks and i'll stay in bonds or i don't know do my own startup whatever the alternative for this is well so to me the crash is not the solution it is a symptom of the way the system is set up right um and I, I would actually argue that the likely outcome from a, a severe crash um, becomes uh, a, a, a loss of the role of markets. Effectively, we, we, in hindsight, after the event, begin to make the regulatory changes that we probably should have done in advance, right? So, um, you know, if you see people's pensions destroyed or 401ks destroyed in a market crash, is it politically unacceptable to allow those consequences to emerge, right? Do we end up with money printing in the form that we had with the coronavirus? I think the template has been very clearly laid out and people are very aware of that, which is part of the narrative around, you know, well, eventually the dollar is going to collapse and, you know, uh, therefore you need to be in gold, Bitcoin, you know, whatever else, right? Buy real assets. Um, again, the future is unknowable. I just can't emphasize that enough. Um, but there are, um, there are components of inevitability around that, uh, in systems dynamics as a phrase it's, you know, it's called posiwid. The proof of a system is what it does. Right. And so when we move to a system that directs savings and retirement assets towards the large publicly traded companies, right. And so even within the Vanguard total market index, it is limited in its representation basically to companies over $100 million in market capitalization. And you can see a very pronounced effect when a company becomes eligible for inclusion, right? You saw that with the S&P 500 and Tesla, for example. Um, you know, when, when that system is set up that way, what it should lead to is a decline in the number of smaller companies and a decline in the number of privately held non-public companies Right, because they have a much higher cost of capital than the subsidized cost of capital created by the inclusion, the creation of these rules. And so this is exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing a loss of dynamism in the small privately held business space and a concentration of resources at the large publicly traded space. Right. Um, the unicorn phenomenon is, as, as you might highlight it, right. You cross that chasm and you effectively, you know, suddenly enter into a world in which almost unlimited capital is available to you. Tesla, again, would be a good example of a company that has been able to tap capital markets to obtain funds that it otherwise couldn't have. AMC, GameStop, et cetera, they're all doing the same thing. Um, that's just the way the system is set up. And so it's likely to continue in that fashion. And the frightening thing from for me, right, you mentioned the dynamics of warning about the housing bubble or warning about the crash in 2000, et cetera is that people tended to learn bad lessons from that, right? So the lessons associated with housing were that, oh, well, housing prices got too high and therefore they crashed, right? Well, that's not actually what happened at all, right? The system was set up so that it encouraged fraud and it was the frauds, the first payment defaults that resulted in the structured products, the MBS, effectively failing versus expectations. And once those models were called into question, Pricing model uncertainty played through and suddenly you could no longer lever your portfolios and sustain that demand, right? That's what the big short was really all about. Um, 
we're now at a point where 10 years later, housing prices are much higher, right? And they're even higher in a lot of ways relative to incomes and, and rents, et cetera, than they were then. Why? Why, why, why has that been able to happen if that was so obviously a bubble? Again, it goes back to what's the structure of a market. The thing that worries me most is that throughout most of human history, the vast majority of people had no access to owning the means of production or owning their own house, right? You were, a, if you were in the Western societies, you were a serf who, ex, who existed on, you know, um, a uh, thatch covered shack that you're the lord of the manor owned and you could be ejected if you refused to do the work that he wanted you to do, right? You had no mechanism by which you could gain ownership of that or get freehold status. The idea that you could have an ownership of your local factory was completely absurd, right? This is part of what, what spurred the growth of communism or the thoughts of Marx and totalitarianism, right? It's entirely plausible that we go back to that world, right? Because the way the system is actually set up, it's designed to narrow the wealth. It's designed to concentrate the ownership of the factors of production into fewer and fewer hands. Um, and that's just how the system is set up. And, you know, we're at a point where maybe it's early enough that we can begin to change that and we can begin to make a um, educated statement about how we want to uh, diffuse, diffuse the surplus associated with our relatively high levels of productivity. Um, or we're not going to. And inertia tends to drive people to say, I'm not going to do anything until a crisis occurs. And so, it, you know, to me, the crash is an inevitable part of it. But ironically, I'm not sure that it, it um, allows the system as it's currently constructed to continue. And, th and that's what I'm fighting against. That's what I'm trying to raise awareness of. That's what I'm trying to get people to be prepared for, you know, the products that we're developing at Simplify and that we offer at Simplify are designed to protect people to a certain degree in those events so that they retain purchasing power in those events, right? As well as, as products that are designed to allow people to retain purchasing power in, in a runaway market event, right? Which in my analysis is, is just as plausible in, in any period as the crash. Yeah, I find this, this is the hardest question at all. One of the hardest questions in life is if you see, if you, if you get and um, and I think you onto something there. Um, and so other investors, they can see certain bubbles, certain overvaluations coming. And there's two options that you have. One, you get in and you trend follow, or you say, well, this is a bubble that might crash. Like we just see this with Bitcoin. Um, so I, I'll stay on the sidelines. But the thing is with Bitcoin, I stayed on the sidelines, but it went up 100X. Just right. because I thought it's a bubble already, but it was worth 100. Now, but it, it came to up to what, 60,000. It's incredible. And I missed out on all of this, which is not my proudest um, moment in history. So there is a moment where you feel like, is it a 10x, is it a 20x? At some point, even if you felt it is a bubble and it's terrible and it will go to zero, um, I feel bad about that decision looking back, even though it was a rational decision, because I think Bitcoin as a store of value is a terrible concept and it doesn't work as a payment currency on the internet, which was designed to be now it became different things over time. None of these I foresaw. So you 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 are in the end right in your mind and you foresee and we don't know how Bitcoin's end. Bitcoin will end, but might still or might go to millions. But what I'm trying to say is even if you're right with your hypothesis, seeing this massive wealth generation and being not part of it as a professional fund manager or just as an individual for decades is a real problem. So with the with the lifespan that we have on Earth, I feel like even if you're contrarian, you're right. 
but it takes 20 years to play out. I don't know if you, if you, as you, you as a social being gain any benefits from this, because for 20 years, people will say you're a nutcase and you're crazy and we don't want to talk to you at all. Well, I've been married for 20 years, so I, I'm familiar with yeah. that experience. Um, <laughs> yes. But um, the, so, so you, you hit on a couple of important points, right? Um, is the, the classic John Maynard Keynes um, observation that the markets can remain irrational far longer than you can remain solvent. Most professional money managers have a very finite period of time for their views to come true, right? Um, if, if I tell you for three years that markets are going to crash and markets don't crash, then you're going to fire me and replace me with somebody who didn't say the markets are going to crash, right? Now, ironically, that process creates conditions for the markets to crash, right? Because eventually prices get bid up by people saying, you know, I don't think markets could ever crash. And, and then there's nobody left to buy, right? Um, that process, again, you know, it, it, people do not model with that degree of sophistication when they think about something like an efficient market hypothesis where the idea is it's based on information. So if I do the extra work, it's actually called the Grossman-Stiglitz paradox, right? Theoretically, as markets become more disjointed from fundamentals, the incentive for me to do an increased fundamental work rises, right? Yeah. But because I have a finite life, right? I've got 12 months, I've got 24 months, or I've got 36 months in which to prove my thesis, and that outcome is largely stochastic in its nature, to bet on that mean reversion, to bet on that solution becomes problematic, right? So again, from my standpoint, the only way to play the game is to participate and to choose non-linear payout functions where I am sacrificing a portion of the distribution of returns in order to improve my outcomes on either right tail or left tail. And, and again, this goes back to the work that I've done, which suggests that the markets are increasingly skewed in either direction. Right, so the left tail events, the downside events, the extreme events like coronavirus or the Volmageddon crash or the fourth quarter of 2018, those become more frequent in their construction and, and more severe in their magnitude. But the expectancy of the market to drift higher and to drift higher at an accelerating rate is increased, right? So I need to participate, but protect my tails. Um, yeah. You know, all of this presumes, of course, that that my analysis of what's occurring is correct, right? It doesn't have to be, you know, you're effectively paying a small penalty to protect in today's market, um, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case all the time, right? And and Bitcoin would be a good example of that, right? Um, Bitcoin was a pure call option. Actually, one of your prior guests uh, I, that I listened to, I mentioned I listened to, to Imran, he described Bitcoin as effectively a call option, right? Well, that's 100% correct. That's what it is, right? Now, it has a call option in two fronts, right? One, is it going to, quote unquote, work as a store of value? And two, is it going to be adopted as a world reserve currency? My analysis of Bitcoin is, is that there's almost 0% probability of it being adopted. And actually, I would, would say that that's increasingly clear that it will not be adopted as the world's reserve currency, right? It constrains the behavior of the powers that be too much, right? It was designed in the aftermath of 2008 as a reaction, basically a libertarian reactionary function to the flexibility of the monetary base that people took offense at. Um, and as a result, it's just too hard, right? I mean, crazily enough, it is too hard. Um, 
that makes it the perfect vehicle for people who want to speculate because all they have to do, they don't need to worry about the supply schedule. They just need to worry about the demand schedule, right? Stock market is very different. If prices rise a lot, the supply schedule will increase theoretically because management teams are going to be issuing additional shares. New companies will try to come public, et cetera. Bitcoin makes that easier. And you see this in things like the stock to flow models that people tried to use that are now, of course, breaking down, you know, where those presume a supply function and demand function is relatively continuous. Um, you know, my, my view is, is that that's likely to fail, that Bitcoin itself is fundamentally flawed and that we're highly unlikely to see uh, the sort of adoption that people propose. But it's a good vehicle to try to do that. And it also then highlights a second feature, which is that the products that we as professional investors have by and large constructed for, for the investment world are targeted at those who have money. Right. So, you know, the design of our retirement programs, things like target date funds, et cetera, that have become very popular in 401ks and as a broad philosophy of how people should allocate capital, they're designed to start with the end goal. Right. You're supposed to have X number of dollars at your retirement. Right. So I've succeeded in my plan. Now let's work backwards. Right. Well, 69 is just the year before 70 and 68 is the year before 69 and 67 is the year before that. And if I go back in this deterministic fashion, I get to 22 and I say, okay, here's what I need to do as a 22 year old to be able to secure that future, yeah. right? Well, nowhere in there are we considering the volatility of the income stream, nor, nowhere in there are we considering the potential rise of or emergence of liabilities that were unanticipated. Nowhere in there are we considering the fact that the person may just become tired and not want to actually do this for 40, you know, for 40 years, right? Or 50 years, yeah. right? Yeah. And so the millennials and those younger are looking at this and saying, wait a second, this system, this deterministic retirement system that you're trying to set up using, you know, quote unquote, volatile instruments doesn't come anywhere close to achieving the objectives that I might personally have. Right. So, again, Imran highlighted the fact that he wanted to establish financial security at a young age so that he could go travel with his wife or he could do various other things. Right. Well, those objective functions for young people are not wrong. Right. We tend to, to treat them with disdain and say, you know, just stop eating the avocado toast as if that additional seven dollars that they would save off their breakfast, if it's slowly accumulated in a deterministic fashion, will give them the ability you know, to retire in style. They're understandably rejecting that and saying we want more volatile instruments. We want more call like instruments, things that have very asymmetric payoffs that buy me some of that optionality. I'm not prepared to just sit there and you know, go, go into a factory and work for the next 50 years as yeah. those before them might have been taught. I think this is very rational with the millennials too, that they go to crazy call options like Robinhood, literally Tesla call options or Bitcoin. And that they also, and I think this is what, what Alexander Bart put me up to this, it's this idea of intentionalism in the sense of, I wanna build something that creates the best possible quality of life for me from, and I, I start from scratch. Like I literally don't, I don't take any preconceived notions of like retirement accounts or the, the boomer world. Um, I just start from scratch and what's the best life. And it's often more optimized for quality than the quantity of money because quantity of money is important and it does help your well-being, but there is quite a bit of limits. Warren Buffett famously said more than a hundred thousand dollars. You just don't need it. I don't, he never paid himself. At least that's a detail. He never paid himself more than this. And I think this is what a lot of people now not just realize it's it's been out there for a while, but they actually put it in production and they go to Bali, become a digital nomad and feel like, well, I spent one tenth and I have a better life than when I'm in San Francisco or in the area. Mm -hmm. And that's that's quite innovative, so to speak. Right. But it doesn't really help our GDP numbers. 
Um, the quality of life has risen, but the GDP number has probably gone down by quite a bit. Um, and that's the confusing part. I wanted to pick your brain on something that might be related, maybe not, is this huge deflationary pressures that we see from technology and from China, which probably is related because China is doing what we don't do, right? So, so they are efficient in the sense of market cap in putting their money in, in the market where they feel like they can create something that's cheap and better. We don't see this in the US anymore. When we have a new startup, it's interesting and it's Uber, but it loses a ton of money. There's nothing cheaper than taxis, maybe a little bit, uh, but it's producing huge losses. In China, I feel like we still have this old theory of capitalism. If you want to create a successful company, you have to do something better and cheaper, both at the same time, or maybe just one of those. Do you think we'll, and that's, that was always a driving force of capitalism, that it, that it drove people forward with better solutions. Do you feel that's something that the U.S. is missing out on? And will we, um, what, what kind of is our role to contribute? Because for now, we're not exporting a lot of capital. That's still Japan's role of saving. What is the, the American role to contribute in the sense of there is deflation out there? We know the technology is happening. But what can we do to bring GDP numbers back to, I don't know, 2 3 4% without the the uh, the uh, artificial changes that the Fed might introduce. Um, well, so so I think that there's a you know again um, complex question. Um, there's a couple of areas that I would push on, right? So the idea of technology as a deflationary component um, is absolutely true, right? Um, but it, it has certain characteristics to it that I think are important to identify, right? So there, there are two different types of technology. There's exploitation and there's conservation, right? Exploitation is effectively a new discovery, right? Um, oil has a chemical energy content that is higher than coal or is higher than virgin wood that is being burned, right? Yeah. Therefore, it's able to be used more efficiently, it creates a greater surplus of energy. Um, and so the discovery of that and the ability, the, the technology to refine it, crack it into kerosene, various other components, powered a innovative type of growth, right? Things that couldn't have been done before could now be done, right? Yeah. The density of energy in a nuclear reaction is similar, right? It creates conditions under which you can accomplish things that you simply couldn't do before. Right. The other type of innovation that occurs is the conservation component, which is me saying I can do more with less. I can shrink the diameter of a copper wire and send elect the same amount of electricity over it. Right. And so those two vectors have very different implications. And a, a true innovation actually shifts outward both the aggregate demand and aggregate supply curve and does so in a where the demand tends to rise faster than the supply because you need to build up the infrastructure right so it creates a ton of demand for cement creates a ton of demand for copper it creates a ton of demand for electrification and therefore consumption of, of fuel etc the natural result of that because we've got this new innovation that raises the return on those higher priced commodities right is, is that you get a durable commodity expansion you get this capital spending boom and then the aftermath of that is how do I figure out how to do things cheaper and do it better, right? Yeah. And use less copper per unit of production. Yeah. We just went through this expansion where effectively we said, okay, you know what? We're gonna move production from the United States where we have to pay workers 
$50,000 or $70,000 to show up in a factory and sit there, you know, with a degree of attention and focus. We've taken that and we've moved them to China where they work for $13,000. That process of relocation created a boom in the, in the development of China, right? Now, the problem for China is that, yes, they've been very, very efficient in terms of building that capacity and servicing Western demand associated with it. But the presumption that everybody has is that China is ultimately going to be able to consume on a significant level, right? And therefore, you're going to create the demand for this. Well, China has such negative demographics that you're already begin beginning to see the relevant population components, the younger generation, begin to collapse, right? So China's graduating high school classes today are about 50% of the size that they were 25 years ago. Right? That means that they are going to have less demand for apartments. It means they're going to have less demand for sofas, dishwashers, you know, air conditioning units, et cetera. Um, and so what you actually have done in China is you've built a tremendous surplus of productive capacity that has no outlet other than to sell to the West at increasingly distressed pricing. Right. I don't I don't know if that's yeah, I mean, I, I your analysis is correct, but I feel like demand is not created just by booming populations. Yes, there is an element to this and we see this in GDP numbers, of course, and we, we can just assume the population will be stable or decreasing from now on, at least for the next hundred years, who knows what comes after. And that's the whole other issue. But I think the world is won by increasing productivity. And I think the, the productivity in certain elements of society, it's not everywhere. But if you go to China, and I, I, I went to, to all over China a couple of years ago when, when we still could easily, it's an amazingly productive on this mid mid level income society. The infrastructure is top notch. You'll, you'll see people extremely focused on work ethic, on education. So I think the productivity rise is what fuels consumption because you can afford it. Like everyone who has money will sooner or later consume. And some people choose to give their money away, but most of us in some point, we maybe give the money to someone else who consumes our children. Maybe we will get to consumption. I think this is productivity growth is ultimately linked to this. And, I feel China has done good in productivity growth better than anyone else out there, even if it's on a low level, on a cheap level, so to speak. So, so I, I didn't answer your question earlier about productivity, and I think this is one of the key issues that you ultimately face, right? So when we talk about productivity growth, it's really important to disaggregate it and not treat it as this national phenomenon, right? So there, there are multiple avenues of productivity that occur, right? Yeah. Um, one is, is that you can give me more factors of production, right? You can give me a factory in which to work and therefore I can turn out widgets at a faster pace, right? Yeah. Um, the other thing that you can do is you can invest in me as a human being and raise my educational level, my skill level, right? So that I myself understand the process of widget creation better and therefore can contribute along the technology and human experience matrix, right? That says, hey, have we considered trying this experiment to make the widgets better, right? Yeah. There's a third component, which is you put me in a widget factory on the very first day, I have no idea what I'm doing and I have a very high chance of cutting off my thumbs in the widget making machine. By the time I've been there for 30 years, it's second nature for me to make widgets and I'm incredibly good at it, right? Yeah. And so when you work across these, and, and there's actually a fourth vector, which is do I only hire people that look a certain way or um, that have certain uh, uh, sexual genitalia um, because of the constraints of my societal behavior, right? And that reduces the labor matching function, right? It makes it less efficient if I'm only willing to hire white males, right? Okay. Every single one of those factors of production was meaningfully affected in the 20th century, 
dramatically affected, right? So we introduced things like electrification and automation and, you know, in carpentry terms, a jig is effectively the thing that, that you design once that helps you then cut things or measure things, et cetera, on a continuous basis, right? We made huge investments in the mechanical equivalent of jigs, the manufacturing equivalent of jigs, which is just another way of saying a factory, right? Um, we also dramatically improved the experience base of the labor force, right? On two vectors, one is the educational vector and the second is the time in the labor force. At the start of the 20th century, the average American had a third grade education. By the time we finished the 20th century, the average American had finished high school and had actually started some form of college, right? That's a huge gain in educational experience. And it wasn't just in terms of the number of years, the years themselves changed, right? So the number of days you would spend in school in 1900 is far less than the number of days you would spend in school on any given year um, as you came to the end of the 20th century. So we increased the skill base of the population. The second thing we did is we largely addressed the um, uh, majority of events that could lead to a uh, premature expiration of your skill set, right? In other words, we introduced antibiotics, we introduced surg modern surgical techniques, et cetera, that allowed people to survive through the middle ages, through their middle age, their individual middle age, and obtain tremendous amounts of experience, right? We also, introduced civil rights that allowed minorities and women to participate in the labor force in the way that they hadn't, right? And so when you run through all these vectors and you actually properly account for the impact that they have on productivity, you discover that there's almost no technological impact. It's incredibly small, right? And okay. so what we're actually experiencing today is many of those factors have moved into reverse. The population is aging. It's moving past the productivity peak, which tends to be around 45 years of age. And increasingly, the marginal player in, in the, the labor force is somebody over the age of 45, right? That's definitely true in places like Europe. It's accelerating in terms of places like Japan and China. Um, and as a result, you're going to see a natural decline of productivity on that vector. The educational component, once you move past secondary education, high school, in terms of a general education process, you're not doing anything to enhance your productivity by studying underwater basket weaving, right? You're basically developing some social skills and the ability to hang out with your friends and drink heavily, but you're not really adding anything to society, right? And so we are increasingly allocating resources to very marginal forms of education that are not actually enhancing our productivity. And the last component is, is that we effectively have no mortality before the age of 65 anymore, right? The prospect of mortality for anything other than a cancer-related disease or some form of accident, which again, we're working on that vector, is effectively nil, right? And so everything is now focused on extending the life of those over the age of 75. And I hate to put this in, in the most gross terms, but who the hell cares, right? What's the advantage of extending from an economic basis somebody's lifespan from 75 to 95? It just means that they're gonna be consuming the resources that otherwise could have been passed to the next generation. It's terrible horrible thing for an asset manager to say because the vast majority of my clients are older, but it's yeah. true. I'm surprised you say that because it seems to me, I mean, I haven't really thought deeply about it, but we had Aubrey de Grayon, who's a big proponent of, of we can live forever, right? And literally very soon, not just like in time and years from now. And he basically said, well, it's really self-fulfilling because we, we accumulate skills over our lifetimes. Yes, some of them might get outdated, but let's assume a good amount of them are still worthwhile, but at age of 60, why wouldn't that process keep continuing forever? Why do we go through this 
you know, I'm going to shut down when I'm 60, I'm going to retire, and then I'm just going to go into a box. Why don't we just keep pushing this our 40s into our 400s, so to speak? Why would it be any different? And he convinced me with this, but it seems really simple to me. And so we will be even more productive at 200 than we are at 40 because we accumulated way more skills. Yeah, so, so, so unfortunately, the evidence is actually pretty clear that that's not the case, right? So remember that productivity is a function of change in skills, yeah. right? So by the time I'm 200, my marginal improvement from the year I was 199 is effectively zero. So in other words, there's no productivity growth. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I never thought about this. So you're saying if you have a lot of old people, then productivity growth is already limited. So we're capping yeah. it more. Correct. Ah. The, the second component is remember yeah. that by the time I'm 200, if I haven't bought a house, I'm probably never going to buy a house. Yeah. Right? Interesting. Yeah. You know, the third component is, is if I live to 200 or 400, you know, I've accumulated a social network in a particular location that effectively means my geographic mobility is zero, right? At 200, I'm not going to pick up and leave my lifelong friends who I've now been in relationship with for 150 years to go strike out and do something else, right? So geographic mobility collapses. Like it's just, it's a fundamentally flawed way of thinking in a techno utopian framework that is just absurd. Um, okay, the, you're very strong in that one, but don't you like the idea of like having different lives? So I, I, I say this about myself, I don't know if it's true. I always feel I had three or four different, completely different lives already. I can't, I can't even, mimic the person I used to be when I'm, I was 20. I spoke a different language, lived in a different place, did something completely different, had different opinions. I don't feel I'm the same person. I, all the cells have changed, obviously, too. So I, I really think from a metaphysical level, I lived several lives already. And I'm actually very excited to live 20 more lives. Maybe this will run out in five years, who knows? But for now, I'm super excited to have, I don't know, be, be something completely different, be an actor for 20 years and then do um, something completely different that I've never thought of, um, that it's only enabled by technology. Isn't that something that that is possible? Like, do, 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 we, do we only live on this one time stream that goes from, okay, I grow up, go to college, do some work, spend, wait for my retirement, and then live a little and go into this box? Isn't there more to it? And can't we enable this with this living extremely long? And, and in turn, also would see very different productivity because it's not just, you know, you, you just keep continuing your behavior you've done 40 years before, you, you become a very different person. You buy a house at 150. Why not? Because you have a new job, new life, I don't know, a new life partner. Um, utopian? I think it's a little utopian, right? Okay. So so first of all, it's both utopian and I think dismissive of the fact that you literally just articulated that you experienced that, right? So, I mean, we live multiple lives, right? I experienced life as an infant. I experienced life as a toddler. I experienced life as an elementary school student. I experienced life as a post-pubescent high schooler. I experienced life as a college graduate. I experienced life as a young employee in a series of ventures. I experienced life as an entrepreneur. I experienced life as a husband. I experienced life as a father, right? I'll eventually experience life as a grandfather, I hope, right? Like all of those are different stages in life and are different experiences that I can't gain access to unless there is a a, a timeline associated with it. Now, one of the features of going to 400 as compared to expiring at 90, which is kind of the target for me, getting uncomfortably close to that, more than halfway there, right? Is it, it's possible for it to extend out, um, but the costs associated with that in the form of senescence, right? So losing skills that I have accumulated, losing the capabilities that I have accumulated, become increasingly high. The costs of making changes, as I indicated in terms of developing new friendships, 
right, um, become increasingly high, right? And so the more you extend all of that, effectively what you're doing is, and this is not, you know, I don't think it's crazy. I think there's actually a lot of evidence behind this, but you create elements of extended natalism, right? So, you know, children don't grow up as fast as they used to, right? They don't move to the next adventure. They extend the time that they stay with their family. Paradoxically, that's actually reinforcing, you know, again, the positive feedback loop, right? And in a very negative fashion, it's reinforcing many of the other components that we're experiencing, right? So if a young man makes it to 25 or to 30 and he hasn't experienced a substantive relationship, if he hasn't actually had a serious um, interpersonal sexual relationship with somebody else because of this extended childhood feature, the odds are increasingly high they're not going to procreate. Yeah. Right. And so interesting. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. The question is to, this must have happened before, right? So we, we had average lifespans already extended. So like say 65 now before it was fifties, 45, I don't, I don't exactly know the numbers and infant mortality had a big impact. So maybe it's not as, as big, but it's fascinating. So GDP growth is really lowering because we stretch out the same development life cycle of a human over more years. So per year, we will see a less, but a smaller GDP growth than this. But if you live longer, it's going to go down even further, right? Paradoxically, yes. Interesting. That's so interesting. I never thought about that. Okay. That's a real problem. We got to, we got to get people, but this is a mind change, right? So we, we, we can influence people to live slightly different, at least theoretically. Well, there's, there, there's a number it's of people. Fact. I mean, now we're off very much in theoretical space, right? And it becomes very much a function of philosophy. So there's the techno-utopian framework, and I would fully subscribe to it. If I got to live to 250 and I was in, top physical condition and you know effectively if i extended the period from give or take 20 to i'm feeling it as i come out the other side but let's say 20 to 55 if i extended that period and made that a 250 year stretch and then i had a 10 year glide off into the sunset fairly quickly after that right effectively a logan's run type structure sure then then maybe something different would happen but that's radically different than what has occurred so far, right? So when you talk about the changing lifestyle or the changing life cycle, you effectively addressed infant mortality, right? So give or take in the 19th century, if you were a woman and you gave birth, um, the prospect of your child dying before their first year was roughly 10%, right? Now the odds are vanishingly small, right? Fractions of a percent. Um, if you were 35 years old and you cut yourself while you were shaving and you didn't know to properly disinfect it with soap or alcohol, the odds of you're getting a sepsis infection were discomfortingly high, right? And we address that with antibiotics, right? And so, you know, like we, we've managed to kill, bad choice of phrase, but we've managed to, to re remove the things that prevent you from living to maturity, right? those are unquestioned goods. Ben Franklin lived into his 80s, right? Like, you know, made it quite a long way, right? There was no barrier that has that was addressed there. What we what we have done to this point is address the kind of, or at least through the 1950s, we addressed the probability that you were gonna die before you hit retirement. And we removed that level of mortality. That's an unquestioned good. Extending the retirement period, which is what we've done basically since 1968, that's actually quite debatable how good that is, yeah. right? I mean, it's it's really not at all clear. You're it, it, like, it's a terrible way to say it. 
I say it with all respect for the contributions that those who are older have made and no desire to put it in the reverse, but you're effectively increasing a degree of parasitism, right? Um, where they are parasites living off of the surplus that is produced by the rest of society. I don't want people to take away that I think old people are parasites, right? I just like, but but as a society, much structure. No, I I know, I understand, I understand. That's really interesting. I never thought about it that way. I mean, the the obvious idea is of long longevity research is you can target any age that you want to be, right? So if you can, um, if you can stop aging, you can push it down to any level you want. So you can target 28, 25, 18, whatever you want. There's a few things you can't do. You probably can't make your skull as small as an infant, but Besides this, you can move anywhere you want on that timeline, and you're going to stay there forever as long as you get your shot every two weeks or whatever the time frame will be. And I think this is this is incredibly utopian. I agree with you, but the the ability to 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 transform our consciousness into something so much longer, it seems to me obvious that we we get better because I feel I'm much more efficient now than I was at 20. Um, but I really see your argument: the incremental change might not be that big, and that's probably yeah. a big problem. No, that, that's absolutely the case. I mean, if I, you know, look, my knowledge base is deep, but my learning pace is slow. I, I recently hired a 17-year-old intern um, who's, you know, developed a remarkable um, interest in financial markets. The pace at which this kid learns and reads is just astonishing, right? I mean, it's 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 so remarkable relative to the way my brain now plods through things, right? Now I have more neural connections and a better understanding of the overall system. But if, if I were to candidly say to you, you know, like, who do you want to place the future bet on? I'd go with him versus me. One thing that transpired to me, I don't know if you've, you've ever felt that I feel in terms of investment decisions and I mean, broad investment decisions, not necessarily do I pick stock A or B, but like in a, in a broader, what sector am I engaged in as an entrepreneur? I feel like as, as less I knew, as more dumb I was, as more as just, I just want to be part of this. I felt I made better decision in terms of RI than I did when I was procrastinating, very smart about it, did, doing long, long-term long models, short-term models, because by the time that I was, uh, my investment hypothesis was set, most of the gains were already out. Like I, I waited too long. So uh, that's my gut feeling. As more I know some now, as hard it is for me to make good gut decisions, and that prevents me, because other people make also gut decisions and later decisions as well, that prevents me from being early in a cycle and actually make wars well it's different because it's not as risky but i feel i make wars investment returns than before uh, have you noticed this too or is it because we're in a paradigm change and we need new hands you know we need the 17 year olds to take over well you put me in a difficult position because i'm a portfolio manager and you want me to admit that i make worse investment decisions than i did no, you before. have a 17 year old intern that's right i've got a 17 year old intern for that um so i i, I think the way I would describe your skill set as you get older is you get better at saying that can't be true, that can't be right, right? If you're really, if 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 you're really good at what you do, you have developed a skill set that allows you to say the math there must be wrong, right? Um, and you know, we talked a little bit at the start about like what I would consider unique about Peter Thiel or you know the the approach that he has taken or that has led me to these types of insights, right? What I would argue that Peter has, and I probably have it to a, a much smaller extent, is a lack of embarrassment of saying, why? Why do you say that? Right? Like, Why do you say there's a God in the sky? Why do you say that the earth was created in this way? Why do you say that markets behave in this fashion? 
right? Why is that the case? You know, uh, the fact that U.S. markets have returned 8% on average over the past 100 years in the form of U.S. equity markets, why, right? And if you are comfortable asking that question and having people effectively treat you as if you're a moron, right? It requires a certain level of intellectual arrogance to be able to continue to question where people are like, dude, I answered your question, right? You know, I, I mean, I told you because, right? Uh, well, that's not a satisfactory answer to me. It's not a satisfactory answer to Peter, right? And so what you're actually doing is, is you're creating the conditions for you to potentially develop a deeper understanding or a vector of attack you know, in an option framework that says, well, what if that's not true? How do I exploit it, right? And how can I place a small bet that could grow into a large bet? So there's elements of that that I think you get better at as you gain experience and you get older, as long as you're willing to retain that plasticity and you don't want to try to become this august, you know, uh, you know, respected citizen who, you know, nobody ever questions themselves, right? Because unless you're willing to have yourself questioned in the same way on your beliefs, then you can't really actually embrace that approach on your own. And it's, it's one of the things I really try to do. Like I always encourage people when I talk to them about passive, it's not challenge me, tell me why you think I'm wrong, right? Maybe there's a piece of information that I haven't considered, right? And so you just, you constantly have to be open to that, right? Now with all candor, can I also feel elements of that slipping away? Right? Is my memory as good as it was when I was 25? No, right? My ability to form novel and interesting thoughts is probably less than then, right? Actually, unquestionably less than then. But my ability to push in the right areas to direct the increasingly limited resources that I have is unquestionably better, right? Now, back to the productivity discussion, if I make it to 200 and you know I don't look like a crypt keeper, um, you know, is that going to continue to improve? I'm very skeptical of it. That's a really good question. You know, we when we when we have so a lot of a lot of investors that don't want to do trend following and don't go into the three month cycle, they strike me as very contrarian, right? And they build their brand portfolio with their contrarian views. So I had Mark Farber on; he definitely does that, and. We, we, we talked about, you know, usually ends up by gold or it, it, I find this a little, uh, not to disrespect him because you know way, way, way more than, than I do, probably all of us. But it seems to me, so there's two problems being contrarian investor. One seems to me, the recommendations always end up by silver, by gold, maybe by crypto. And I'm like, okay, this this is really boring, right? I mean, this is all you come up with after 60 years. It doesn't, it doesn't sound that interesting to me. And then, so there's always an element of this. It's not just that, but I feel like this is really intellectually boring and that's strange for me. And then the other problem is, as a contrarian investor, you basically, you, you're literally against everyone and you you got to be out there and face what you just said. You, you, you're, you're a moron for a while, but you might have to sit it out for 10, 15 years. You get really lonely. Like maybe you're right. And maybe you're not just maybe, maybe you're hundred percent right. But I feel there is a price to pay in social, the social dilemma, so to speak. So I'd rather be, a part of society and be wrong for 20 years than be right. But like, nobody wants to talk to me because I'm so abrasive. Uh, I don't know how you deal with this. You, you, you seem to have a way to deal with this. I, I, I think it challenges and it mesmerizes a lot of other really successful investors who are, they, they, their trade-off is, I don't know how they did the trade-off. Um, they're very, they're very successful. They have a lot of money, but I think that is, they paid a heavy price for their success. Yeah. So, so, 
Um, look, I, I look at strategies. Uh, you know, if you think about what gold, silver, Bitcoin, or crypto have in common, they are all mechanisms of saying, I think the tribe is headed in the wrong direction, and therefore I'm going to opt out of participating in the tribe. Yeah. Right? You guys all go on your nomadic adventure, heading off in search of you know X Y Z. Right? The the waters, the watering hole, the you know, next source, I'm going to stay here in my cave and not participate and just wait for you guys to recognize what a terrible choice you made. And when you come back, I'm going to own the cave and you're going to have to pay me rent. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, that's functionally like what you're trying to do. Right. Um, it's a terrible strategy, but it has an evolutionary precedent. Right. Yeah. Think about lions hunting or cheetahs hunting on the African plains. Right antelopes in general have the strategy of trying to stick together zebras are intentionally designed so that their stripes make it confusing when they stick together to attack the tribe right yeah. but there are there's an evolutionary feature that leads to some zebras and antelopes to occasionally take a left as compared to a right right and the reason for that is is it builds robustness in the system in two fronts one is if you're actually being chased by a lion, right? Then the, the it separates that individual from the herd and becomes effectively an altruistic sacrifice, right? The other one though is what happens if everybody's veering right and you're actually headed for a cliff, right? And so that actually enhances the evolutionary robustness of the population. There's a reason why we pay attention to um, cataclysmic forecasts, right? Like I. I can sound much more serious if I say to you, there's going to be a crash. You have to protect yourself this way, et cetera. And exactly to the point, I'll have about a three-year time horizon in which that can be borne out. And if it gets borne out, then I get to become very wealthy and very successful. And what am I going to do? I'm going to tell you there's an impending crash that's going to come next, right? Yeah. Like I'm just going to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. I sound far less sober by saying, no, look, the way the system is set up, it's designed to cause this, right? And so you have to participate, you have to stay with the tribe, but you also have to have a effectively a parachute so that if you go over the cliff, you know, you're able to land successfully, right? Yeah. Um, that's a far more nuanced and difficult conversation to have, right? Yeah. And I, I agree with you, you know, I've said this elsewhere, like just from an evolutionary perspective, we are wired to take very seriously cataclysmic events. If I say to you, there's berries in the bush, your reaction function could be, yeah, that's great. I see the berries too, right? I'll have to remember that and come back to that at some point in the future when I'm hungry, but I'm not hungry right now. If I say to you, we're on the plains of Africa, obviously, if we're in San Francisco, as we both are, if I say to you, there's a lion in the bush, you're going to think I'm a kook. But if we're on the plains of Africa and I'm like, holy crap, Torsten, there's a lion in that bush, right? You're really not going to spend a lot of time going over and looking in the bush, be like, are you sure that's a lion? I don't think that's a lion. Maybe it's a lion. You're going to run, right? Yeah. You're just going to get out of there, right? And so that's what those contrarian, right? And I would actually describe them as cataclysmic investors are trying to do, right? By creating an element of, you know, perceived sobriety while everyone else is alleged to have lost their minds, they're drawing attention to themselves. They're attracting um, attention, et cetera. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm on record as telling people like the solution is just to vote better, right? If we all try to leave the tribe, the tribe disintegrates and we're unable to, you know, conduct 
um, productivity enhancements and surplus enhancing activities. But we could pick our leaders better, right? We could soberly say like, what are we actually trying to accomplish, right? Do we really wanna try to all march off this cliff you know, with the idea being that on the other side of this cliff, there's Nirvana. I think that's a terrible choice, right? And so what, what would I try to do? I try to say, look, the guy who is leading us is a sociopath, right? Um, we shouldn't be following him, right? Vote better is the language that I try to use for people. Yeah. The problem is, is that we're just so distracted. We're so frantic right now. The survival function of people trying to retain their standard of living in a society with the type of surplus that we have in the United States or the developed world is a degree of panic associated with it. And I just don't think people are able to um, assess it in a, a rational, fundamental framework. And, and there's a cost to that as well, right? I mean, I mentioned being married for 20 years. Like the number of times my wife has been driven completely insane by my insistence on saying, well, wait, what are the actual facts? Forget the emotional content. Let's, you know, try to figure this out. You know, what are the rules of the system and how the game should be played, et cetera. It doesn't make you a very social, like it's, it's not an easy person to get along with, right? And so yeah. money management tends to be a solitary, you know, a solitary process. Yeah. I like how you put this and I like the, the, the approach that you take. And I think I'm very opposed to the, the libertarianism, the extreme or narco-capitalism that says, well, we'll just get rid of the dollar and we introduce Bitcoin. I mean, I even just put, let's take it at face value and say, this, we'll do this as a practical value. This is crazy. And it's so easy to, to, to fix what's wrong with the dollar compared to this, right? Because it's such a proven, well-working system. If you feel there is something really wrong with this as a reserve currency. So I, I, I like the approach that you introduced where you say, well, the incremental changes is what we should focus on, even if it takes a little more of a push to overcome what's wrong with the system or whatever, the stasis the system is in, so to speak. I think that's awesome. What, if we talk about, and let's go back to finance a little bit um, one more time. We obviously talked about the passive investment bubble. Where, the, where else do you see there is a bubble that we could potentially relatively easily trade against? So I think there was a problem with the 2007 bubble that it was so hard to trade against. I spoke with Harley about that. Finding someone who sold you CDS and CDS option was like impossible. Like there were like 10 people even had access to this outside of an investment bank. But what? where do you feel there is a bubble that's forming relatively cheap to trade against with, with a certain instrument um, that others our listeners should look at well so this is part of the this is part of the objective function for simplify and one of the reasons why i transitioned away from the hedge fund space and into the etf space so um you know my my work is always focused on this dynamic of what is the market structure what are the rules how does it guide you know effectively trying to turn it back into a board game effectively and say what are, what are the rules and strategies that would optimize or that this system would lead to right yeah um the rules were changed in September of 2020 about what can be included in an ETF. There's something called the derivative rule that has now standardized the process that allows me and the, the rest of the team at Simplify to design products that facilitate access to those types of trades, right? So we're actually in the process of, of um, uh, uh, building a strategy that will allow retail participation in things like CDX type structures, right? Um, Harley has introduced a product that has a um, character to it that that embeds a, a, what, what's called a um, uh, an OTC over-the-counter customized derivative designed to protect against interest rate increases. Right. 
So we're trying to facilitate the access to these vehicles and we're trying to detune them in a way that makes them appropriate for use in retail portfolios, right? So exposure to the markets with protection embedded in it, et cetera. Um, so, so this is getting easier because the rules are changing, right? And I think that's a really, really important component. And we're not yet at the point where I would argue the feedback loops are such that these trades have become crowded in that fashion. They, they represent a tiny fraction of the market at this stage. Um, in terms of the, the challenge that we have on trading bubbles, right, is it's very, when you trade a bubble or you experience a bubble, you always have to ask yourself, what is the catalyst for it to end, right? Because otherwise you're trying to effectively step in front of a steamroller. And you know, my flows discussion that I had at the start is the right way to think about that. If everybody wants to buy a house and everybody is buying houses and has access to the credit that allows them to buy houses, right? Then the prices of houses are gonna continue to go up and anything that is built on the assumption of housing prices continuing to go up in terms of its suitability is gonna be very, very difficult to bet against. It's when that capacity to borrow money is withdrawn, right? And so the next marginal buyer is not there and they're not able to drive prices higher that those systems begin to break, right? Now, it's in examining those rules that you ultimately have to get to it. Now, if I look at markets, the obvious break that is occurring is the baby boomers heading into retirement, right? They are beginning to take withdrawals. Um, the challenge is this different type of investment, right? So I mentioned that passive investing is now about 44% of the market. In the US, it's less than that elsewhere, although gaining share rapidly in much of the rest of the world for regulatory reasons. But that's not a, a uh, homogenous distribution, right? Meaning it's not equally distributed, right? So baby boomers own much more active, millennials and younger generation own much more passive. And so as that aging is occurring, we're continuing to see money flow into passive strategies with very little in the prospect of outflows. Until that breaks, I don't think that you actually see these bubbles correct. And so you need to be able to participate and trade in both directions. Um, yeah. On the other side of where do I think that there are bubbles or, or where are things that are, are more proximate, I keep getting drawn back to these debates on you know, what is inflation and are we going to experience inflation? Are we going to see a collapse in the dollar, et cetera? Um, I'm very, very skeptical of that because if I look at where I think the actual fundamental bubbles are, it's in places like China, right? Where they have optimized the Chinese system to sell the labor product of their population to the rest of the world. As their labor population declines, the productivity and the efficiency that would have to be realized by that declining share of the population rises. So effectively there's a, a standard level of productivity improvement that is required that actually goes up, even though the easy changes have already been made. And the right. domestic population that can consume that falls, right? So China is increasingly in this scissor move that to me feels very much at odds with the way the rest of the world thinks about it and is, the biggest concern that I have about China is the potential for China um, to receive false signals about this, right? Because as that surplus emerges, as you sell to the rest of the world, you actually paradoxically build up domestic resources that make you think that you're invincible. And it becomes a very short hop, skip and jump to saying, okay, well now let's try to invade Taiwan and take it over in the way we did Hong Kong 
or let's try to expand in other ways, right? I feel this is definitely going to happen. If you ask me, there's a 99% possibility that China is going to be on the expansion on a territorial regime. It's not going to be just Taiwan, it's going to be most of Asia. And that's obviously going to be a pushback from Australia, the US, Europe, Europe to a lesser extent. And that's, I, I think, and I don't actually know what the reason is. I, we talked about on the podcast here for psychological reasons. We talked about the reason that, that the model of China, as you just outlined, is, in, is, is a monoculture and it maybe comes to an end of its growth. I think this is also putting pressure on it. I think there is um, a, a huge, but this event is probably necessary. Right? A, a for now, we say, say that for the US to wake up, to actually figure out where, where, where are our strengths and how, what should we do with our economy? Because if it's just rolling along comfortably, we will never make any useful changes. And then on the other hand, it will, it, it, it's there's an ultimate show of, of productivity growth, right? So when we look back into wars in the past, as terrible as they are, they also show usually that the more productive society wins. And often that's the more free society, not always, strangely enough, but generally this is the more free society. So I mean, we know how this will turn out, but I'm, I'm pretty convinced this will be the catalyst. So there will be a strong or maybe not a strong, but some of a, of a hot war building with China. And this probably is the catalyst of China being a much smaller economy after that, maybe 10, 20 years from now. Uh, I wish we could avoid it, but I just don't feel that the ingredients are right for avoiding such a war. I, th I think it's, uh, I, I tend to agree with that. I think it's hard um, to put that sort of determinism on it, right? So yeah. um, the, you know, the conditional probability, what's referred to as a Bayesian probability is, you know, uh, if X happens, you know, what is the probability of Y conditional on X, right? Yeah. The point that I would make with China is that if China moves relatively quickly to a militaristic framework, then it, that scenario is almost definitionally true, right? That, yeah. um, so if China decides to invade Taiwan in the next two or three years, then, you know, you will almost unquestionably see China try to expand in that fashion. The flip side of that, though, is that the costs of their demographic pressures are going to become increasingly obvious. And so, you know, we tend to think about China as this place that has unlimited population component, but that population component is increasingly skewed very, very old. And when you're skewed old, you can't participate in the military. And the, the fighting force is a fraction of the military, right? So the U.S. currently has a support ratio because we project ourselves internationally of about 10 to one. So you need roughly 10 people working in logistic support for every fighting member of the army, right? Or of the military. Yeah. Um, China has a much lower ratio because it's all domestic. They don't have foreign bases deployed with the exception of their first bases that they built in places like Eritrea, et cetera. Um, Sri Lanka may, may, may fall in the same fashion. Um, but as they expand, that support ratio is going to rise as you try to expand the size of the military, right? And you try to expand the geographic scope of the military. And that then flies directly in the face of their demographics because the population that is available to fill that is shrinking, yeah. right? And so like, well, I, I actually think that there's a, a high probability of something happening relatively soon, but if it yeah. doesn't, then China moves fairly quickly into a much less powerful mode. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, the, the, the interesting part of is that we are still by far the largest trading partner of China, right? So I always wonder, you, you can't go to war with your largest trading partner. I mean, you can't, I think Germany did this, but that, that was, it worked for like five years and then the economy fell apart. I think everybody knows that. So that's kind of the only thing that where I say, well, this is not gonna happen because that's 
well, you can replace your largest trading partner a little bit, but in the end, you're going to feel the pain sooner or later if you overextend credit or you find a lot of customers that are not as rich as Americans. Well, I, you know, again, I, I think it, I think that there are, there is an element of it depends, right? So the largest trading partner is always domestic. So you know, sure. China, you know, the, what what matters is their domestic economy. What matters is our domestic economy. Yeah. The the proportion that comes through import, export, and global trade is relatively small for almost all countries other than Korea, Germany. It's you know, Taiwan is a great example, et cetera. Um, the second question becomes: Can you not? Can you create a knockout punch that effectively invalidates your trading partner's response function? Right. So, if China were to rapidly take Taiwan, what are we going to do about it? Yeah, nothing. We, right. Not immediately, at least. Yeah. Same, same, not not immediately. Potentially, not never. Right. I mean, what what's our reaction function been to the very clear violation and takeover of Taiwan in advance of the twenty forty seven deadline? Right. Nothing, or not Taiwan, I mean Hong Kong. Um, absolutely nothing, right? We've done nothing. The US won't go to war with Taiwan. Maybe, I think, Vietnam, but I don't think less so. Maybe Korea. I think this is where the line will be drawn eventually. But definitely, I don't think Taiwan will be an issue. I mean, it will be an issue. Maybe Australia will go to war. But I don't think the US will be involved by this. It's too, I, too risky. I, I, I think the prospect of Australia going to war without the US against China is is functionally zero. Right. Hopefully, yeah. Um, oh, but they surprisingly, and that that already puts us way off topic. But really, surprisingly, Australia, despite being so politically correct and being having really strange attitudes the last five years on China, they seem to be really hawkish, which is really surprising to me. I don't know where this comes from because they made so much money to China. So something's it, they were like the biggest friends of China for the longest time because they made the most money from that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to distinguish what you mean by friends, right? So there, there's, um, they, they, they were very strong trading partners. Um, a tremendous amount of commodity wealth was created. A tremendous amount of real estate wealth has been created by uh, Chinese nationals effectively seeking a uh, democratic regime as, a, as an exit vehicle, right? So there's been a tremendous amount of disruption that's occurred. The domestic Australian population, I think, is increasingly frustrated by that in the same way, you know, but they have an identifiable external feature there that is maybe different than the U.S. The U.S. has not quite figured out the role that China is playing in disrupting um, a lot of the standards of living, although I think that's starting to change, right? If we go back five years ago, these discussions were far less common. Um, there's a huge difference between kind of the ability to stand up on principle and the ability to stand up in, in you know, practice, right? And Australia's economy is so deeply integrated and tied with China um, that it becomes very hard. But everything that China is doing, right? They have this idea of wolf warrior diplomacy, et cetera, that you've heard you, you've heard talked about, right? The Australians see this very, very clearly. They understand that they are at threat from this. And the Chinese are being very explicit in their behavior and making it easier for China, for Australia to, to um, separate itself from China, right? By overreacting to everything that, that Australia does, where Australia says, hey, that's not a good way to behave. And China says, shut up, sit down, you're our bitch, right? Like yeah. that naturally causes Australia to be like, what? <laughs> you know, yeah. no, we're not gonna do this anymore, right? Um, and, and effectively, you know, the, that becomes the, un the overwhelming phenomenon at some point. But that is what China is doing. China is, way prematurely effectively standing up and saying, we're your largest trading partner, we're your largest trading partner, don't tell us what to do.
right? Yeah. I, I, I don't know if it's premature. I feel like I can't measure it, and you have way more access to data. I feel like the self-confidence, the new self-confidence of China is, is probably based on real data. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just made up. Uh, who, who knows? But I feel like there's something going on, either profits or just the way the economy runs, or they run out of investment vehicles. I think that seems to be what you, what you reflected on earlier, that there is this jump from a mid-level economy that they're not making. They don't know how or they don't know what to. And that's kind of they have the same problem we all have suddenly that there is we don't know where to put our money they have this ginormous amount of saving that they could put in infrastructure but they that's kind of done right so they don't know what to put in the next level and maybe territorial expansion is what they're looking for to to keep the peace internally i think it's a, I, I think there's a separate issue right so you know democracies are very messy right because they allow democracies and republics to to a lesser extent are very very messy because they allow a diffuse set of objectives to exist, right? What I want to accomplish with my voting pattern, what I would prefer to occur, can be radically different than what you want to occur, right? And we have to effectively negotiate that out. And as you move towards a more totalitarian system, and this is really what's happened with China, is that they've unquestionably moved to a more autocratic totalitarian system since the emergence of Xi in 2013. Um, as that occurs, there's paradoxically both a gain in efficiency and a loss of information. Right. So the efficiency is we stop all the squabbling about do we build the Three Gorges Dam? You just disappeared for me. I'm not sure if, uh, okay, you're back. Um, you know, we, we remove all the discussions around do we build the Three Gorges Dam? And it becomes how quickly do you want us to build the Three Gorges Dam? Right. Yeah. You, you saw this with the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire. Right. Once Augustus takes charge, what does he do? He builds beautiful, wonderful structures that exist in, in the center of Rome and give the indication that everything is better than it's been before. Why? Because I've taken a diffuse set of objectives and I've focused them, right? You see this within team building exercises all the time. You need a leader. You can't have everybody be a chief, right? Nazi Germany. As China right? is experiencing Nazi yeah. Germany, exact same thing, right? So you experience this coalescing of objectives that creates the perception of improved productivity. The resources can grow, right? Mussolini, Hitler, et cetera, what were the phrases that the population used? At least they made the trains run on time. Yeah. Right? And so the, the single biggest risk, though, that you face in that is that that also has its own negative feedback loop in which the, the information that makes it to the decision maker is increasingly filtered by those who want to avoid losing influence with that, with that individual. Right? Yeah. So it becomes a series of yes men. And that in turn actually raises the risks of military conflict. Can we take Taiwan? Yes, we can, sir. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a perfect description of how this, this end game looks like. Uh, when, when, and this is the last question. I know your time is very valuable. I really enjoyed this. What do you feel is beyond that? If we, we say this happens in the next 10 years, that would be my conviction two days of war and it's partially a hot war, which ends up being China being a different animal than it is now, but it's obviously still going to be a China. Um, what do you think, if we, if we take that a little further, do you see any other big trends out there where you're relatively convinced they're going to happen because you, you analyze the chessboard so much? Um, these things are going to happen. We don't know who the winners are yet, but those things are going to happen in the next 20 or 30 years. Is there any gut feelings that come to mind right away? Well, I mean, so I do a little bit of, of advisory work for the U.S. government. And, you know, what I keep emphasizing is, you know, we are 
all it's almost impossible for us to lose this battle. Yeah. But we can lose the war by becoming our enemy in the process, right? So republics and democracies are messy, right? They are naturally inefficient in their provision of services because there's such a diffusion of objective functions, right? Like, I, you know, what do I want out of my government? Maybe different than what you want, right? When you eliminate that and you focus it, right, you raise the productivity of the public sector that becomes very good at doing one thing, right? Producing military equipment to fight a war, right? Um, but there's an, there's an inevitable loss in terms of the individual freedoms that are associated with that. And the thing that worries me most is I've seen how quickly we as Americans are confronted with the inefficiencies of the public sector and how we're increasingly beginning to say, would somebody just make the damn trains run on time? Or could we at least have, have trains? Can we get trains? I'd like to have trains, right? You know, like we're moving in that direction where we're effectively saying our elected representatives are incompetent and engaged in squabbling and corruption. We need to move toward authoritarian system where it's set to achieve X objectives. And you see the US splitting in terms of tribalism along those objectives. That's my single biggest fear, right? On, on the positive side, and where I'm much more positive than most people, is I look at human innovation and I tend to think that what we're experiencing right now is, I, I mentioned the two different types of productivity, right? The innovation and the exploitation. We're almost exhausted on the exploitation, right? Like the things that we're doing more with less, right? Like we've taken the ultimate form of it. We don't even need to have factories in the United States. We can accomplish it with extraordinary productivity by paying Chinese to do it for us. Right. And so we're we're at the tail end of exhausting that exploitation feature that is tied to things like telecommunications, et cetera. So I can get on a phone and I can or I can get on a Zoom call and I can talk to my factory in China and I can say, I need you to produce X for the US market and the logistics features that allow me to ship that across the ocean, et cetera. Right. We're approaching the exhaustion of that process. Yeah. Um, does that create the opportunity for innovation on the other side as we reshore that productive capability? Do we introduce automation so that our TVs and patio furniture and clothes are made with much lower labor content and with much greater degrees of customization, et cetera? I, I think the answer is probably yes, right? But what does that require also? It requires us to advance factors of production. And the single biggest factor of production that we're struggling with right now is the provision of, of very, very low cost base load energy. And you know, I'm extremely hopeful, probably um, utopian in my belief that we will eventually move to various forms of nuclear power um, that provide that base load energy that have everybody turn around and say, man, there are so many things that I can do now that I couldn't do before because the energy is so much cheaper and so much more uniformly available, right? That, um, I, I, like, that's that's where my hope lies. That that will advance in that way. And um, I, I would, you know, it, I, I'm very good friends with people like Josh Wolf, et cetera. Like, I, that sort of techno utopianism, where it's not about some magical, hey, we can solve the world's problems if I only get to live forever. Um, to we can actually take the structures of the factors of production and meaningfully improve the life experience and this capability, the human capital capability of the average individual 
um, or the median individual much more than the average increasingly because of the, the, the uh, character of the distribution of wealth and skill sets in our population. I, I'm, I'm very excited for that, but it requires hard choices and there's risk associated with those hard choices that we move in on an authoritarian path. Um, so that, that's, that, that's my guarded optimistic outlook on where we stand. Well, I'm very happy that I got a utopian thought out of you. Yeah, there, there, there are a lot of them. I, I'm, I'm actually an optimistic person, but I, you, you know. are, you are, but not. A, I, would, I wouldn't say utopian, but that's great. I mean, that's I, it's a fine line to walk. I, I, I fully agree. Mike, thanks so much for doing this. It was awesome. I learned so much. Thanks for sharing. Course, it's a pleasure. I really appreciate that. Take care. Look forward to next time. Bye, Mike. Take Bye. it easy.